Hey, I'm Tim. And I'm Drew. And this is the Hearts and Hands Podcast. In episode 21, we're joined by Professor Mark Pauschen to discuss indirect communication and how it relates to art. Welcome to another episode of the Hearts and Hands Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Sonnenberg, joined as always by my co-host, Tim Babbler. Tim, how are you doing? Doing well. How about you, Drew? Pretty great. We had a really fun conversation this week with one of one of my favorite uh, professors from back at MLC, Professor Mark Paustian, Dr. Mark Paustian. And he's he's just a guy that thinks on a, on a different level when it comes to communication. That's what his doctorate's in. And so we just had a really fascinating conversation with him this week. I'm really looking forward to everyone hearing it. And one of the interesting things when you talk with someone who's at a such a high level, every once in a while they may say, you know, that didn't go exactly how I planned it. And we did uh, record this podcast in one take as we do most of our podcasts. So we actually got an email from Professor Paustian asking, hey, maybe we can do a second chance at this. We compromised and told him, hey, we'll have you back on the podcast again and you can definitely expand on your thoughts more. Yeah, it, it was really uh, interesting that he, he kind of said that he had wished he had just taken maybe a little bit more time to think through what he wanted to say because he felt it didn't come out exactly how he wanted to or that he wasn't, you know, prepared to answer. <laughs> Sorry. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, Professor Paustian is fairly famous within the Wales for writing a couple books. One of them's called prepared to answer and the other is called more prepared to answer so like we were already talking about making a joke using that phrase and then this situation came up and so we we hope professor that you're not too mad at us for just poking a little fun at you but we are we are looking forward to having you on again in the future and hopefully uh then you are a little uh more prepared to answer and the good news is some of the best conversations we have are candid and it's just an honest response to something but we definitely uh, think you'll enjoy this conversation and uh, let's take a listen today we have the opportunity to hear from mark paustian welcome mark hello mark for our listeners could you give a glimpse into who you are and what you do sure i'd be happy to i am a professor at martin luther college the wells college of ministry of course i teach Communication, been at that the longest, mostly interpersonal communication. I'm also um, in the Hebrew department, teach Old Testament Hebrew, and a new thing we're doing, which is that the Pasture Track guys at our college are getting an exposure to Christian apologetics and also homiletics as well at the same time, kind of both are new and very exciting. So before this career, I've been at this about 18, 19 years, I was a church planter, a pastor in Rockford, Illinois. So that's me, married to Constance, and I've got two girls. Both are engaged, getting married next summer. They are Abby and Hannah. Awesome. And, yeah. Professor, you recently got your doctorate, is that correct? That is correct. And your your thesis involved this this idea of indirect communication, especially as it kind of presents itself in the Bible. So for those who are unfamiliar, could you kind of give us a, a glimpse into what, what exactly is indirect communication? How How does it present itself in the Bible? Yeah, it's it's a it's a kind of complex topic. So I will do my best to try to make it understandable. It was an interesting convergence, by the way, of that I could find a way to bring my communication world and my Hebrew world together so nicely. So I was just really pleased um, to find a topic that will never bore me, and it was <laughs> communication, um, which is 
sort of frame it as how do you talk to people, especially about the, the Christian truth, Christian message, when they are resistant or when they are not disposed to listen to you or when they think they already know or where they're under some kind of illusion along those lines how do you communicate and i connected that uh, as you suggested with uh, the how of biblical communication especially the old testament so most important obviously is what the old testament communicates the, the truth of god the theology the doctrine the, the great beacon pointing at christ but what then began to interest me just as much or almost as much was the how as i say so it's like saying, why why the predominance of story? Why communicate this way? You know, why why the imagery? Why apocalyptic vision? You know, why poetry? Why why um, why identification with the the sorrowing prophet or with Moses on his knees at the burning bush? So, just the the fascinating array of ways in which the Bible communicates, and just asking myself, um, not that I can read God's mind, but. How does that all work? You know, so like story, for example, it's going to always have this quality of leaving something up to the listener and the reader to work out, you know, what does this thing mean? The stories don't tend to explain themselves, you know, and so it's that kind of entangling of the listener or the reader, like the images do in the Bible as well, you know. Whoever touches you, God says, touches the apple of my eye. And the, the literal thing is, whoever touches you, God says, touches the the pupil, the, that is the the little man you see in my eye when you look into my eye. And that's just an image that you just have to kind of linger over and tease out. What is, how is God's providence like having that little me in his eye that I can see, you know? And so it's just the, the profoundly entangling things in the scripture. And I guess the, the easiest example might be when the prophet Nathan needs to go confront King David, you know, that he approaches him with a parable. He approaches him to tell him something David already knows. He already knows he committed adultery, right? He already knows he, he committed murder. He already knows he sinned in these grievous ways. But David is profoundly resistant to anyone that's going to bring this to him. And so he smuggles this in by means of a story, and he brings David into a, a close and kind of alarming con contact with the truth that he already kind of already knew. And it's just uh, the way it breaks through it. So Jesus being asked why he turns to the parable form really explains it in the same way. He explains that he accommodates himself to the resistance of his audience. And he does that as a fulfiller of prophecy. So it's just this fascinating thing, you know, to for me to to never stop asking what the scriptures are teaching, but but not only why or how they teach, but to sort of ask the question, now that we know what it teaches in terms of the doctrine, we're going to ask, what does it do to you? How do these scriptures affect you? And that's going to lead us more down the path of the form that they take, you know. And it's going to, I think one effect is it has me not only engaging with the Bible intellectually, asking the what does it teach question, but also engaging in a more holistic way as I, as I think the effect of poetry and story and imagery and so on that it has on me. So I'm doing the best I can. You know, I wrote a 500-page monster on all this. <laughs> so, oh boy, you could just talk, talk, talk. I, what, what can I, what can I elaborate better for you? So you mentioned that one of the the primary advantages that this kind of communication has is that it it works on a, a listener or a reader who's resistant in some way. Wh why does it do that? What what is different about indirect communication that 
allows it to reach a resistant audience. Yeah, I, uh, it can work in a, in a whole number of ways. One one way it can work, for example, is it, it has a way of we defamiliarize the gospel. In other words, the gospel comes in some form that I don't recognize. And so it can be, and I'm just teasing out the possibilities, it can be that it is working on my heart and mind before I really understand. Um, it's, it's sort of like exposing the listener to something that is radically redemptive, let's say, uniquely Christian. I think that Christian art does this really well. It exposes the person to something radically redemptive and uniquely Christian before, perhaps, it arouses all the barriers and all the patterns of resistance. You know, before it has the name Jesus on it, that in our culture, it's just going to reliably raise that whole set of psychological barriers that, and spiritual barriers that the devil has really erected to the message. So I'm exposed to it before the scandal of, we're talking about Jesus here, before the scandal of the cross, so to speak. Is that kind of making sense? I, yeah. You know, a lot of time, I guess the comparison to, to art might be something like this. So when other ancient cultures told their history, they would often do it in, in the form of epic poetry. No, the Bible, biblical poetry doesn't do that. It isn't used to, to really narrate the history of Israel. Instead, when you find in biblical poetry... Well, references to the Exodus, for example, references to walking on dry on dry ground through the riverbed. You get these these vague references that really don't make any sense unless you actually already know the story, right? And so it it's not it's so much of the Bible it seems to me, and this is just like Christian art. It's really not bringing you any new information. It's, so it's taking information that you already have things you already know and, and it's just as I keep saying sort of deepening your involvement with it you know by virtue of it being images of language over poetry that comes in this feature of parallelism where we always have these two sticks of poetry kind of echoing off each other it comes in 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 ways that just sort of as we say you know impacts you in maybe a more holistic way it's just like looking at Christian art, and the Christian art is, let's say, the classic um, example of the, there's the lamb, and the blood is coming out of the lamb, and this thing we've all seen, and the blood is taking the shape of of the continents and the whole world, right? And a person looks at that image, and it's not any new information, but it's just, there's this moment of, you know, saying, oh, I get that, you know, the moment of being brought into contact with things we already know, but in a much, in, in, a, in, a, in a deepened sense. And I think it's Dorothy Sayers or, or her or Flannery O'Connor that expressed how this just makes it all more available. That moment of, I recognize that truth, you know, it makes it more available to me, I think, in, as far as how I bring it up into my life. So I just see the whole range of ways the Bible communicates, like apocalyptic literature, too, which is classically is the example of literature that is always interacting with things you already know. So we know that the word of God is powerful. So Revelation now will show us a sword coming from the mouth of Christ. That's how it all works. It's all things already known on other grounds and other scriptures. But especially for a time when people are facing profound resistance in the culture, people are persecuted, people are under fire. There's just this kindness of the spirit, I think, to take things you already know and kind of plug them into some wall socket, you know, and just these things just light up and become larger than life and and so again this is just the whole fascination of the 
the range of genres. So my dissertation was basically just choosing scriptures that represent every possible genre of the Old Testament and just asking this question, you know, why do it this way? Why why would you ever do it this way? You know, the why would God want us to sort of catch the mood of the prophets and catch the mood of Moses at the burning bush and 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 catch the feeling of it like a contagion? Why is that an important part of of interacting with scripture, not just intellectually, as I've been saying. So yeah, the waters here are deep and I, I, I do sometimes struggle for words. Again, Nathan before David is just this classic example to think about why does he craft the message in that way? To do, uh, I, I guess C.S. Lewis has a phrase, he, he calls it sneaking past those watchful dragons. And he's describing why his whole apologetic of Christian truth turned away from the kind of apologetics he was writing in, you know, mere Christianity and miracles and the problem of pain, turning toward this very, very indirect form, you know, turning to, to the Chronicles of Narnia, for example. So sneaking past those watchful dragons means I want to give you an experience of what it's like to be in the presence of Christ before you maybe even know that that's what's happening to you, you know? It's just a fascinating dynamic, and, you know, you write a dissertation, you need to come up with something that will interest you. Um, I don't <laughs> I don't mean to be, you know, sort of turning anything upside down in for us, how we communicate. It's just a, a set of questions that have kind of gripped me. And I like what you said about it being radically redemptive and uniquely Christian. How else do you think that we can break down those barriers in the way we communicate, whether it's through art, through song, through music, in order to to let people see something with new eyes or see it uh, from the Christian perspective, even if it's not uh, in their face beforehand? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and I'm not sure I have it all worked out. I, I, uh, I got a story I sometimes tell that maybe will help a little bit. My my advisor in my program was just a wonderful guy, a really resourceful, brilliant guy. Uh, happened to be a Pentecostal minister in his background, so we had lots to talk about <laughs> spiritual things. So he he's in Egypt. He's in a culture that was. The opposition to Jesus is fierce and profound, right? You can't, you can't mention his name and get out alive uh, in some parts of that culture. And so what does he do? Well, what he does is he gathers a film crew together of Muslim people he gained some contact with, people who had converted to Christianity. And together they put on this movie. And the movie is of a young Egyptian girl who is caught up in the sex trade. And, you know, she's taken far from her family and she's she she sort of gives herself to that life to survive, you know, just to get through. And when she is used and spent, then she she will contemplate going home. Right. This is how the movie plays out. But she can't go home. She can't in that culture. She's dead to her family and they're they're dead to her. Right. But actually, the way the movie does play out is she she does go go home and the her parents receive her, and her father embraces her in, in this, this really radically countercultural way. It would never happen, not in anybody's imagination. And uh, the movie is called The Prodigal Daughter, and the, the text is taken right from Luke chapter 15, and there's no mention of Jesus. And so when I first heard that story, I found it, I found it really moving, and there's something compelling about it, but I was, I was just having to react and... In terms of that's not going to bring anybody to Jesus because you really have to know the person of Jesus. You have to know the elemental truths of salvation. But what my advisor would say is when the resistance is what it is, all we can do is turn something loose that has that redemptive quality that 
can perhaps just on its own level, even psychologically, can create a space in the mind a person could yearn for and hunger for. And in in God's in God's economy and God's providence and God's timing and in God's way, when the message of Jesus is somehow brought to a person within that culture, that there's been something that's already been going on, you know, in terms of just this message that avoids the scandal, that avoids arousing the barrier, that avoids all that predictable resistance. And so the question that you're asking is, what does that look like? You know, what's the version of that that we can pick up on a spouse? And I'm, I'm not totally sure. I think sometimes it just can be uh, the love that we show someone that, that explodes the stereotype and is surprising, the, the love for the homosexual person. They're not expecting us to treat them warmly. They, you know, they had been conditioned or taught or maybe they really experienced something that was not kind, you know, not uh, not compassionate. And just the very fact that we are loving them, that we are maybe the person on this planet that actually cares what happens to them can be, can have maybe that same dynamic of one day later on wondering, you know, why were you so kind? I don't know, does that make sense? I, I Sometimes I think about Jesus doing miracles and then saying, but don't tell anybody or... The disciples confess, you are the Christ, the Son of God, but don't tell anybody, he says. And you're like, what in the world is going on there? And I think the answers that we have are convincing you know, that their work, that he's sort of staging his ministry and staging when the opposition should come. But I also wonder if he, it's the same dynamic. He, if he just wants to get under people's skin, he wants to, he wants to uh, gain their affection and trouble their dreams. You know, he wants to have as many Nicodemuses as he can have that will seek him out at night saying, what in the world do I make of this Jesus, you know? And then the scandal comes, you know, toward the end, who are you? Are you the son of God? I am, you know, then the full scandal of that. But not not until after he's already, as I say, haunted their dreams. So, yeah, I wonder, does art do that? Are the ways that art is really, you know, not directly hitting people over the head with the Christian message, but is more provocative you know I think what I love about art is one of my standards for good art not that I'm an artist myself except maybe in writing I can try to be but is what kind of conversation it creates so so the Christian art should do something more than just we say oh isn't that nice you know isn't that pretty but it actually provokes and actually carry within it those things that we already knew but but is deepening our involvement with them so I don't know I you know there's this book by Philip Yancey, which I'm sure we don't all endorse everything that he says, but one of his latest books is called Vanishing Grace, I think. And what he tries to document is really just three kinds of witness or three kinds of sort of Christian responses to the world that are having inroads. And one of them, I think the first one is the artist. And I think there are pockets in culture where only art in the form of whatever Requiem, or whatever it might be, something by Bach, or just some provocative, indirectly, or play that's communicating Christ in some indirect way. I think he's arguing that those are the places where the culture is listening. And a lot of other places, the patterns of resistance are just so ingrained, you know. Tim Keller says that what Nathaniel says about Nazareth, what good can come from there, you know, what in the world could possibly come from there that anybody would want, that this more and more is the culture's response to the church. What good could possibly come from there? You know, an expect an expectation of just zero good. The 
positive view of the church, Yancey has some stats on this, that how it's just fallen off a cliff just in the last 10, 15 years, and how, boy, if you dare to walk on the street and ask what the word evangelical means to people, just brace yourself, you know, that we really are facing a profound levels of resistance in, uh, I think what Sayers again called the Christ-haunted culture. People know enough about Christ, actually don't. They have a version of Christ that is enough to inoculate them from the truth of who he actually is. And so all I can say is that I just, I find the question important. I don't think I have it all worked out either. I find the question important of how do you communicate, how do you accommodate your communication like Jesus did when the culture moves and shifts in this kind of dramatic way where the opposition is just out of the closet, so to speak, you know? So I don't know. I'm asking the same question. Well, how does this translate? So in other words, if we want to, as I advocate, just take our cues from Scripture. There's a whole menu of ways to communicate from the direct to the indirect that are just written across all its pages. And I just think there's something there for us to think about and study and take our cues from that whole range of ways, from story to poetry to song to just the whole the whole realm. Um, I think that we will be better off. Well, with a lot of our guests, we ask if they have some new artwork or anything that they're working on that they want to be able to plug i don't know if you got any creative projects or anything that you want to point people towards well i it's going to take a couple of years for it to come out but i am really privileged to be writing a book of meditations on worship that is meant to come out with a new hymnal a couple of years from now so i am 49 percent done <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh it's kicking my butt i mean writing i love to write but it's not easy not easy for me but um so there's that coming about halfway done I do have a podcast on my own. It's out there now. It hasn't been promoted at all. I've told a couple of friends. That's really been it. It's called Where Two or Three. Not even sure where to find it. I think it's on Podbean. Uh, my my partner, John Wildauer, is the one who is is uh, doing all the, beside, all the behind, behind the scenes things. So I don't have much good information for you how to promote it. But it's called Where Two or Three. I know that's one place you could find it by searching it. Yeah, the point of that is just to bring theology and communication together more broadly than what we've just done with indirect communication, just in general, to watch watch those two disciplines cross-pollinate. It's just, it's just a, a wide-open field that I'm very excited about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. My total pleasure. Thank you. God bless you both. That wraps it up for another episode of the podcast. We really do want to thank Professor Postin for coming on and being so gracious. Even if he didn't think that went well, I really gained a lot of insight from that conversation, and I'm really looking forward to having him on again. And we'd love to hear your thoughts. If you have any uh, comments, questions, or suggestions for future guests on the show or topics you'd like to hear, reach out to us on social media at Wells Creatives, or send us an email at heartsandhandspodcast at gmail.com. Also a reminder that the Hearts and Hands Workshop for 2019 is coming up in June 18th through 20th. If you go to wellscreatives.com, you can find the full lineup of presenters. You can register. You can donate if you're not able to make it, but you want to support the group of people in the movement that we're, we're trying to promote here. We just appreciate any support we can get. And speaking of support, we're extremely grateful for uh, the support we've received so far on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash heartsenhancepodcast. Go ahead and check us out there. You can get instant access to bonus content and extended uh, episodes. Most of our interviews have been going really well that it's tough to keep the episode lengths short. So just about every other interview we do has an uncut episode that is on the Patreon. So if you're looking for more content, check it out there. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time. 